Welcome to Dollars to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Yes, it's Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Our sponsors are Balsamic, the maker of mock-ups, the rapid wireframing software that combines the simplicity of paper sketching with the power of a digital tool. The Pinterest research team, who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. And Airbnb's experience research team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. To take your organization's user research mastery up a few levels, ask for my help at Portugal.com. Buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon and Rosenfeld Media. Stay tuned for my next book about user research war stories. My guest today is Monal Chokshi, the head of UX research at Lyft. She's a top athlete who has worked in Berlin, studied at UC San Diego and at Stanford, and worked at Xerox, Intuit, and Yahoo. Thanks, Monal, for being a guest on Dollars to Donuts. Yeah, sure. Well, first, Steve, thanks for having me on your podcast episode. Really excited to talk more about user experience research at Lyft. So my name is Monal Choksi, and I'm the head of user experience research at Lyft. And if I didn't know what Lyft was, what would you explain to me? Yeah, so Lyft is an on-demand transportation service. So for those not familiar, basically all you have to do is download the Lyft app, open it, and tap a button, and basically you have a driver ready to drive you wherever you want uh, within minutes at your doorstep. And where does Lyft operate? So the headquarters are in San Francisco. We also have offices in Seattle, Nashville, and New York. And where do you have drivers? Drivers all throughout the country. So I believe we are now in over 190 cities. But it's an American operation. Yes. Right. So drivers are in the United States right now. Is that is there an international goals for the company? Well, right now we are... We, we recently, in the last six to nine months, announced some partnerships with international ride-sharing companies. For example, with Didi, which is the largest ride-sharing company um, similar to Lyft in China, and Grab, which is in Southeast Asia. I believe they're based in Singapore. So the idea being that travelers from the U.S. would be able to travel to one of these places, open the Lyft app, and call a car. It wouldn't be a Lyft car. It would be one of these folks from our partner companies coming to pick them up. So we haven't launched that yet, but uh, that is a partnership that we've announced, and we're really looking forward to getting that going. Makes me think of uh, like code sharing in airlines where you can purchased through it, through the sort of front end that you've always used, but the service is delivered through a partnership with somebody else. Is that a, is that a, does that comparison apply to something like this? I think it might. Um, I think it's a, a pretty good way to think about it from a you know an analogy. I'm sure there's yeah. other there's probably better analogies for how how products and services in one market end up in another, but that's the best I could think of on the fly. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be design challenges. What does that experience look like in that different situation? 
Yeah, we're, we're really excited about designing this new experience just because of the various challenges that come with different cultures and different transportation schemes for various cities, especially international. As we all know, the cultures, the modes of transportation are different from city to city in the U.S. And then overseas, there are various challenges with language as well. So there's a lot of really exciting things to think about. And I love the like the really specific use case you're, you're looking at now, which is I'm from the United States, I use Lyft here, I'm in a different context, so how can I bring access to that service with me? Mm-hmm. makes me think about what you know people who use Netflix complain about it, or I think I hear this with the iTunes Store, for example. You can't get the same access when you're in a different place. So this gives you, I'm just I'm sort of imagining, it gives you, you can sort of bring your Lyft travel experience with you in these other environments. Yeah, and people use and are comfortable with Lyft here. We want to be able to make sure that they have the comfort of the same kind of service over there, something that they can trust and feel good about, uh, something that's familiar in an area where everything seems unfamiliar to them. Can you talk about um, you know the work that, that you do here and what is research like at, at, at Lyft? Sure. So research at Lyft has always been part of our core DNA, in a sense. The founders, Logan and John, are really focused on treating people better. And that includes all of our users, our drivers, our passengers. And so really understanding who these people are and figuring out how to create the best user experience for them has always been top of mind here. Before I joined, we did do various research activities and there were several initiatives happening at Lyft. Uh, Once I joined, I joined to sort of make that part of our regular product and design processes. And so the kinds of research that our team does really runs the whole gamut of what UX research Um, can do. We do everything from field studies and surveys to user and usability testing of new designs and products. So yeah, it's, it's been a really fun place to work just also because user experience is so well regarded and supported here. When did you come to Lyft? I've been at Lyft for about a year. Okay. So the, you're describing a little bit about how, you know, what you were brought in to do to, to, to sort of I don't think you use the word formalize, but that's sort of the word that comes to mind to, I guess, is the question about, you know, what that change has been that you've, you've helped drive. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think a lot of the research previous to when I joined hadn't been formalized in a sense that now it's much more a part of the regular daily, weekly process. And I've also joined to basically build a world-class team of user researchers so that Lyft has grown so much in the last year and we are continually growing at a very increasingly rapid rate. So there are a lot more needs that we have um, from a research perspective. And I think as we grow the company, there are more needs for insights. So bringing that to the table and helping build a company that's very data and insights driven uh, is, is a priority for the company. 
And I've seen sort of two different modes of how insights, uh, and I'm sure there's many more, but two kind of primary modes in terms of how insights can impact decisions. And one is sort of the reactive and one is sort of the proactive. And you know, where reactive is, uh, somebody comes to researchers with a question and says, hey, can you help us make a decision about this? And the other is uh, people that, you know, researchers often who have done research are uh, evangelizing those insights and trying to bring them out to find the people that can use them to make decisions. I don't know if that, if you even buy into that, that kind of framework, but I'm wondering, A, does that ring true? And B, if so, like, how does that, how does that map to what you've seen in your work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we do a mix of both. Um, when I first joined, I think it was more the former in the sense that, you know, people had specific questions and we we're always aiming to try and answer business questions using various methodologies, whatever's going to work best to get those questions answered. But there are definitely times when we actually see something that is interesting and we'll probe further on it in order to say, hey, actually, there's an opportunity here. Or actually, there's some pain points or something that we need to look at further here. And we'll bring that to the attention of stakeholders in the company for further investigation. So it sounds like... uh you know, part of that evolution, you know, the, the growing of the company and the growing of the role of what you and your team are doing is, I mean, developing the ability and developing the context to have those conversations. Yes, we can answer the questions you're asking and, hey, everybody else, here's here's things that, that we're already doing or can do to support you. Mm-hmm, definitely. So maybe that's just maybe what I sort of asked inarticulately a moment ago. Maybe that is the vector of a growing research practice as you shift from reactive to more more kind of reaching out. So we've talked a little bit about sort of some of what you've been working on in the last year, but maybe we can just go back, 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 you know, maybe talk about how you end up being a researcher, sort of what, what some of the things that you've done that have you know, led to, to today. Yeah, definitely. It's funny, I, I often joke that my background and my entrance to becoming a UX researcher is very non-traditional just because it is, in fact, on paper, very traditional. Mm. And, you know, I've been focused on this area since the beginning of my career, even back in my days at Stanford as an undergraduate. So I think that's pretty rare for folks in our area. So, yeah, when I was growing up, uh, I always had a fascination for computers and technology and played a lot of video games as a kid. Uh, started programming on my own for fun when I was in middle school on my Commodore 64. <laughs> Dates me a bit. <laughs> and um, when I went to school in the mid-90s, I was, I was lucky enough to be at Stanford where a lot of you know the stuff with the internet was just coming um, seeing light and getting out into the world so uh, very lucky to have been there and found my major which is called symbolic systems so symbolic systems is an interdisciplinary major made up of classes core classes from computer science philosophy psychology and linguistics and um, I graduated with a concentration in human computer interaction so a lot of what I do today was rooted all the way back from, from that time. And one of my first, I guess the, my start of my career, I'd say I, did, I was more of a, what we would call today a UX generalist. So back in the dot-com times, as you remember, sorry to call you out. <laughs> hey, I had a VIC-20, so I, okay. I had an older uh, Commodore computer than yours. So yeah. I'll own it. <laughs> cool. 
so as a UX generalist, what you know, I'd maybe call someone like this today. Um, I did everything from front-end coding and UI design to information architecture and user research. And back then, I mean, I was really seeking more objective ways as a designer to know how do I go about my design. And unfortunately, I think most user research at that point was limited to usability testing. So while I had done a summer internship while I was in school uh, at Boeing in a usability lab, I grew more interested with various kinds of methods of research. Like, what else can we do? How else can we learn about users? And I was very lucky to have had a mentor at this company called Trilogy. It was my first company that I worked for in someone named John Marcus, who now has a consulting company in Austin, Texas. He's had it for many years now. And back in the late 90s, he actually worked with Jacob Nielsen at Sun. So he was probably the best mentor I could ask for And we together uh, built a usability lab at Trilogy, and he mentored me while I learned more about doing things like contextual inquiries, focus groups, all kinds of methodologies. And that's what really got me excited about focusing my career in this area. And I had some really big successes from doing multiple method research in terms of helping the company understand what was actually happening with users. Even at that time, this was back in like 19. So I saw the power and the value of what user research could provide. From there on out, um, it got a little more challenging as the the fall of the dot-com era occurred. And at that time, user experience research, or usability, (laughs) they called it, was, I guess, UX was sort of coming to bear around that time, the term. It was much harder to find a job doing this because at that time it was seen as somewhat of a luxury kind of position. Companies didn't necessarily see the value in having it uh, beyond you know, something that if they could afford to do it, great. It wasn't table stakes. So I focused on continuing with design, but I kept coming back to research in my mind. This is what I want to do. So I eventually went back to grad school to focus on understanding more different kinds of methodologies. How can I apply this? How can I become a UX researcher as for a career? So um, I, I went to UCSD and studied cognitive science there and eventually started working as a UX researcher and I have been ever since. So prior to Lyft, I was at SoundCloud in Berlin for two years, uh, starting a research team there. And prior to that, Intuit and Yahoo for several years. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, around the dot-com time, I worked um, in some various startups. And, and let you preface this whole story with um, with uh, that your story is, is a, it's a traditional path, which makes it sort of, as you said, that's the exception. Um, <laughs> exactly. But so I sort of was listening. I was listening as you were talking to think, well, what what is the traditional path? So I don't know. I'll, I'll just throw it as a question. What's what about your story and the path you've gone through? What makes it traditional? Traditional on paper. Yes. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes. That's the important disclaimer. Right. Right. Well, it's because I actually, you know, back in. 1994, I took a class at Stanford called Introduction to Human-Computer Interaction with Terry Winograd, where we were actually designing and looking at user interfaces for software. So this, to me, is something that most people, maybe going back that far, didn't necessarily look at at that time. And Mm -hmm. even when I talk to folks today, 
20 plus years later, folks are still like, wow, what you do is really cool. And I say, yeah, I know. <laughs> they're like, how do I do that? How do I get into this industry? I want to do that. But I don't have the background. I didn't go to school for it. Should I go to school for it? Should I take classes? How do I break in? And I think there are a lot of folks who, most folks I know who are researchers today, even designers, people in the UX field, they've come from all different paths. And I think that's part of what makes it a really interesting set of folks because we're so diverse and we have lots of different paths that we come from, but all of them include doing something with people, trying to understand people and enjoying that. And so what's your answer to those people that ask you, how do I, how do I get into this? What would you tell them? Well, I think it depends on the circumstance. My advice, I mean, and it depends on what kind of career they're looking for, but there are more classes today, which I encourage people to take. There's lots of stuff online. And I mean, obviously, the best thing would be to just get the experience, but I think it, it can be very difficult to do that cold. I know there have been folks who have just gone out and done research on their own and said, hey, look, I've done this about your company. I've used your app. I tested it, send it over to the company, and sometimes with really great success. Um, I've even had some people uh, send me stuff like that about Lyft. So it's it's really interesting to see how folks are basically trying to break into the industry. But I mean, definitely a traditional on paper route is very helpful, but I don't think it's necessary. And so in your traditional on paper route, uh, it sounds like I'm talking about a paper route. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, it seems like there was this culmination for you with, uh, with UC San Diego, right? It seems like that's where you said, Oh, I'm going to go become one of these things. And that's the way that you went about doing it. And of course, you had all this background and going all the way back to, to Terry Winograd's class. But the graduate degree in, was it a cognitive science? Mm-hmm. See, I don't know. My perception, that seems not traditional on paper to me. That sort of seems, I don't know, like more in the HCI realm and less in the... Although, I, having said that, I'm not sure, is it a social science degree or a design degree? Like, what is, what's my perception of the, of the traditional on paper thing? But, mm-hmm. And so the fact that you and I don't even share definitions of traditional on paper, even though we have... I mean, I have, I'm a little older than you, but we have, we've seen some of the same eras of this work. I don't know. I think it only goes to bolster your really important point that the diversity of... Of backgrounds and um, you know, or, you know, uh, disciplinary orientations and, and all that that make up the work is it's just part and parcel of what this what this practice is about. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I chose to go to UCSD because, well, first it was on my radar because of Don Norman and the design of everyday things previously called the psychology of everyday things, um, really resonated with me. And that was sort of my Bible <laughs> for, for, you know, when it first came out. And then there, there were multiple labs there that were focused on using ethnographic techniques in order to design technology in, for everyday use. And so that was one of the things that really resonated with me in terms of going there. It wasn't so much the cognitive science academic courses. It was more about the folks there and the opportunities to do research there where people were thinking very similarly in terms of, you know, how, how to do research and it was very applied in that sense. So yeah, so I, even though it does sound somewhat orthogonal to UX, it was actually very close to it. 
especially once once you explain it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and seeing uh, an academic uh, use of, uh, of ethnography kind of in, in terms of using technology, that seems very... I mean, that's, that's still cutting edge for the work world. It seems extremely cutting edge for uh, academia and back a few years even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back then, I think in the early 2000s, I mean, when I graduated from Stanford, I always wanted to go back to school because uh, I'm always like wanting to learn and a student at heart and I wanted to work first. And so I already had on my mind getting a graduate degree um, and craving the desire to go back to academia at some point. I just wanted a break and some real real practical experience. But that said, it wasn't that I hadn't tried becoming a researcher. Back then, you really needed an advanced degree to get into that field because I had tried. And part of it was the fall of the dot-com era. So, you know, it was really difficult to have those opportunities. But the companies that were still looking for folks like that, like some of the bigger folks, I mean, I don't even think Google... Google definitely didn't have folks then looking at that, but maybe Yahoo or eBay. You definitely had to have more of an academic background to to enter. So right, it's such a contrast to now, where um, you know, as you said, there's a lot of classes out there where these classes and, and General Assembly springs to mind. I think there's probably dozens and dozens of, of, of other examples, but they seem to be maybe the most common brand. That's what that I come across. Mm-hmm. Um, where that, you know, like a UX intensive from from General Assembly, like that's the that's sort of this, the symbol of qualification where an advanced degree was something. And so that's, you know, if you just compare and contrast what it takes to get an advanced degree versus what these kinds of programs are providing and that sort of the coin of the realm has, has really shifted. Um, I don't know, part, part of me thinks, that, you know, the population has uh, of researchers has just exploded between the time that you're talking about and now. So I'm not sure what the, I don't know, what, do we know what the cause is and what's the effect or, you know, what, what has led to what? Yeah, it's a good question. And actually, before I left for Berlin in 2012, um, I really feel like there's been a shift. I mean, I was when I finished my degree and started working again, um, I thought, wow, I'm always going to have to work at a big company because I still had this mindset of what I explained back in the dot-com days where this was a luxury. Uh, you're the last to come into the company. You're the first out. But that's not no longer the case. And I, I've thought about this a bit, and I sometimes think that maybe back then, then it was all about the technology. Wow, this is really tough to build. There's a lot that needs to go into this. Um, just getting that done was a really big accomplishment. And I think now, not to say that building code is easy <laughs> or writing code, but um, building an app, it doesn't have to be that difficult. And so it's become really important in the marketplace to have a great experience. It's not just about having the functionality now. It's the form as well. It's a lot of times a differentiator as to why people choose your product versus another. And I think that's part of the reason why people are jumping on the bandwagon of, oh, yeah, actually, this is really impactful. We can learn how to get our product to be successful in the marketplace. And that thing about uh, the importance of the experience, I, I agree with you totally. And it's we keep getting it demonstrated to us over and over again. I mean, as consumers, I guess we, we see this. It's really hard to do that. And there, you know, we have lots of good examples of of a good experience, and it's just amazing to see how it's impossible to sort of replicate. Or, or I mean, I think if you look at sort of the battles between um, you know mobile phones over the last eight years or something like. It's, it's hard to 
just because someone does one that has a good experience, you just see these terrible things come out of other companies. And if we were two people wearing, you know, with design in our title, we might talk about that issue in a one in a certain way. I wonder if you have a perspective wearing a research hat. Like, why do you why? In the, what's the conversation researchers should be having about why it's hard to? We know that a good experience is important, but the creation of that experience is like amazingly elusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily something that researchers can always pinpoint to. I think a culmination of factors have to come together, various things, and some of them are just very emotive and users can't describe them. Researchers might be able to observe it happening, but I think it takes a really good researcher to be able to dig in and understand all those things that are happening in this person's subconscious, so to speak. Yeah, it, it, that, that makes me think of a comment you made early on where you used the phrase uh, world-class research team. Can you define what that is? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about what I look for in a researcher. So there's three main traits that I've sort of boiled down to what I think are most important for researchers, user researchers to have. First, people need to be empathetic. So have user empathy. And part of that is being a really good listener. So being a good listener, being a very observant person, also being personable, and approachable because anytime you're with a user, someone that you want to learn from and about, they need to feel comfortable in your presence. And along with the user empathy piece in the definition of being empathetic is you need to be able to look at things from that person's perspective. So if someone's overly judgmental, that's going to detract from their ability to be a researcher just because you have to be able to consider their point of view. Uh, The second thing is analytical thinking. So obvious strong one. One of the things that I think can be the most impactful for the quality of research is being able not just to collect all the data, um, which you might use the empathy skills to do in a sense, but to then take those insights, well, take the data and the findings and turn them into insights and actionable recommendations that will drive good results for the business and for our product design. So there's a lot of other areas also where analytic analytical thinking can come into play, but I think that's what's unique to this field and this profession. And lastly, this one is probably overlooked by many, but I would say having really great project management skills and being organized. Because oftentimes as researchers, we are managing so much when it comes to participants, sessions, multiple projects, and you have to be organized and keep all of your data very organized. It's just part of the territory in terms of having those skills to manage all of that. And oftentimes manage the teams and stakeholders that come along with that so that you can ensure that people are there to observe to participate. There's there's some administration work, administrative work going on here, but a lot of it revolves your success as a researcher revolves around you being able to stay on top of it and be very detail oriented. So those are things you look for, right? How do people uh, exhibit those characteristics in a way that that you can assess? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely hard to do in a single interview. During the interview process, I definitely like to be able to see them in action. We have folks do typically do like some kind of homework 
during the process. And I often like, like very many companies, like to have them do uh, a challenge in the office where we recreate, you know, kind of a real life scenario, some role playing. And so we can kind of see how they tackle problems as well as interact with folks and understand how they may work with stakeholders. I mean, teamwork, all these other things are also very important. But the three that I pointed out were specific to, I think, user experience researchers that are not necessarily applicable to other fields for specific reasons. And I like that your three kind of span a research project, for lack of a better noun. I mean, you're not, you're not looking at people's data gathering abilities, or not just that, but what do you do with the data? And then how do you help it? How do you help that results succeed in the environment in which you're working. Mm-hmm. So sort of managing the logistics of, of your stakeholders and their participation and kind of their engagement and and so on. So yeah, I know I like your list quite a bit. Thank you. I mean, I think those three things make sense, but is there anything controversial there, anything missing or where you would, you know, dispute how other people approach this? Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot missing from the list. I think th- these are just three things I keep in mind, but of course there's there's plenty of other traits that um, are important. As I mentioned, teamwork, being a fast learner, being adaptable to change, so many things that we probably look for on a holistic level. You know, mm-hmm. if you want somebody on your team, you want to like them. Um, there are lots of things that I think can be applied to many different roles when you're joining a company. I mean, at Lyft, we definitely get excited about folks who are also excited about our vision. And the vision at Lyft is something that attracted me at first. Uh, Having lived in Berlin for two years, coming back to San Francisco, I didn't know much about Lyft just because we didn't have it over there. And I'd heard a lot of friends and other folks talking about this company. And so finally decided to give it a try when I was on a visit here. And thought it was so interesting, like the whole sharing economy and talking with my driver. And I I started thinking about Lyft as a company and realized, you know, I didn't know much about them. Let me check them out and searched them um, online and started reading about their story. And that's part of what got me really excited because our founders were really interested. They weren't just interested in building a better taxi. They were really interested in kind of a long-term, big-picture vision of creating better communities and reconnecting people through transportation. You know, the long-term vision is redesigning cities, it's, it's really cool. I mean, this is such a hot space right now, and we're working on so many exciting projects as a company. One of the things I love is that we're constantly executing. We're getting things out the door. There's always something big happening, but the vision is always what keeps us focused on what it is we're trying to do. And that vision is something that I really can get behind because it makes my job feel a lot more meaningful. I mean, I think as UX researchers, you know, having empathy is something that we just innately have within us and we, we desire helping others. And so when you look at the meta for this company, um, that's what we're aiming to do as well. So, you know, we're, we're looking at reducing the carbon footprint 
getting fewer cars on the road, putting more people in vehicles, making rides cheaper through ride sharing, lift line, and building communities through that experience. I've had so many amazing conversations with other passengers or drivers in the car, and I always just leave with a smile. So it's really fun to work on something in the office, take a lift home, and actually talk to my driver about, oh, wow, you have this issue? We're actually fixing that right now. <laughs> I can't actually tell them that. But it's really neat to know that we're making a difference on a daily basis. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the relationship between, I mean, especially between you as a researcher, but with your researcher sort of identity on between being a UX researcher and the vision of the company. So you talked a little bit uh, earlier on about the different users. You kind of said, like, you talked about passengers, you talked about people using the using the app, which I guess might not be the same as the passenger. You talked about drivers. I don't know. What, tell me about who who do you study? What do you look at? Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, definitely passengers, people who are looking to get a ride, who are using Lyft to take rides, and then the drivers who give rides. So currently the Lyft app that we have today, the single app, serves both of those types of folks. And for people, most people probably don't ever see the driver's side. But once you apply to be a driver or approved as a driver, there's a whole other world on the other side of the app. So we look at both those users. And more recently, um, we, we announced in the beginning of this year a partnership with a company called National MedTrans Network. So their users are a whole new set of users for us to investigate and learn about. Um, I can tell you a little bit of a story about them. Um, so they, National MedTrans Network uh, is a company in New York. They work with insurance companies like Medicare, Medicaid, whose patients are these elderly folks who basically need routine medical rides, rides to doctor's appointments, a lot of times... Uh, all the time non-emergency rides. And they often don't need to even be transported in an ambulance or any special kind of vehicle. So National MedTrans has all these relationships with various car service companies, including taxis in New York City. And one of the interesting things that came to bear was that, you know, whenever they have a taxi or car that doesn't show up for a patient or cancels for one reason or another, which, you know, is pretty common, it takes, in New York City, it takes them about 45 minutes to get that passenger, that patient, another ride through the taxi company. And so, you know, they started using Lyft and found that, wow, can get a ride in just a matter of moments using Lyft and get this patient home so they can take their medications, so they can do whatever it is they need to do and not have to wait there on the street or whatever. And, And these folks have a lot of times more special needs than um, some some of our normal types of passengers. So the great thing about this is that in terms of building this new product, research was highly involved. And so I, I went over to see National MedTrans, brought a designer with me. And as anyone who's done contextual inquiries know, there's so much more to learn when you're in that environment and learning who the users are, what their daily tasks and processes are, and the entire environment. I mean, this company um, where we visited them was like people in cubes functioning as a call center. They're scheduling rides. They're working with taxi companies. They're talking to patients, care, you know, 
caretakers, people who are managing transportation needs for these patients. And it was really, really insightful for us to be there and use the insights there to figure out how to build the best possible product for these users. It's something totally different than what we have in terms of our native app offerings today. And who will, within that use case, are there multiple users there that have different experiences with Lyft? Well, the primary user in this case is the person at NetMed Trans who is requesting a ride and managing the ride. So right now, a lot of these elderly folks, they don't even have smartphones. And so it's, it is a little bit of a, a juggle um, in the sense that Lyft wasn't necessarily designed for this use case from the first. And so we're getting to the point where how can we build the best possible product? Um, there's the driver, there's a the passenger, and now there's this middle person who functions as it, like, kind of like the app does for you or me who might be taking a ride today. It's, I mean, it just speaks to a really, really, in capital letters for me, big idea. You know, a lot of the technologies that we see are are apps, and there's interesting, um, I don't know, let's just call them sort of democracy or democratic access, I guess there's probably a better word for this. But if you don't have the income or the technology sort of know-how to use those things, you're shut out of a whole bunch of ways to participate. And what excites me about what you're talking about is, and it's a fascinating research question then is, you know, how do we make non-mobile device users Lyft users? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, those principles can apply to anybody, but you guys are digging into that. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it is actually really fascinating. And just being there and thinking through these whole, you know, this set of issues and, and this problem, it, it really brought me back to my roots where this feels like a true user experience problem to solve. You know, lots of different players, various tasks and processes. How do we make this work? I hear the sort of analytical aspect of it as you talk about it, but I also hear your sort of your point one about empathy. Like there's something in your voice, which won't come through in our transcript, but there's something in your voice as you talk about it. It seems like this this touched you or this struck you in a certain way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the thing that I think struck both me and, and the designer when we were there was like, wow, um, we're there in, in this call center. Someone called in a patient who had been waiting and they couldn't get a ride and how, how quickly they were able to resolve the issue with just using Lyft. And it was just, it just blew our minds. We're like, wow, this is really cool. Like we made this person's day so much better by just getting them home. <laughs> So that that project sounds like a sort of a special one, maybe sort of outside, or it's a new area for you to be looking at, uh, you know, beyond the traditional set of, of users that you've been thinking about. I don't know, in, you know, in, in, in the life cycle of, of doing the research of whether it's getting your data or, or you know, helping the, the teams make use of it, I don't know, are you, is there any spots that you find particularly challenging that, that you've had to dig into? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that actually drew me to Lyft was the fact that I think there are a lot of really interesting research challenges with our product. Um, we're really on the cutting edge with 
regard to mobile devices, being completely mobile, um, having to try and do research in a very constrained environment, which is a car. And I think that there are a lot of methodological challenges that come with that. So for example, if you think about it, the best research comes from real life situations. You want to be able to observe, you know, from, of course, from like qualitative user research, you want to observe what's happening in the real world or simulate it as closely as possible. And if you want to find out what's happening in, in ride experience, if you're in the car, you're already biasing what's happening there because you need to announce yourself as the researcher. Everyone knows you're from Lyft. It's people are going to be a little bit more cautious about how they act. So let's say, take the researcher out of the car. Let's just put a camera in there. Well, then there's legal constraints as well. You need their permission. And if you have their permission, then of course, they're again, going to be a little bit on guard. And this will really bias the results if this is what you're interested in learning about. So we've had to come up with some creative and innovative ways to study some of the things that we're interested in learning more about. And I think along with that, you know, recording, conducting research, and huge amounts of data are always challenges for researchers across all industries. So specific to Lyft, though, and specific to this this area in particular, I think we have some really interesting challenges. And it's fun because it's you come to work every day thinking about, you're really stretching your brain. <laughs> And, and you feel really good when you come up with something new and get to be creative in those senses. Are there any um, process innovations or anything that you can share? Not exactly. Um, I can tell you about uh, one of the first programs that I started when I joined. So we wanted to ensure that we had user testing for, for most of our projects coming through on a regular basis. So I started a program called Drivers in the Office. So D-I-T-O, which we call DITO. And along with that, PACSITO, which is Passengers, which we often abbreviate as PACS in the office. So DITO and PACSITO, it's like a weekly user testing cycle. And it's been a lot of fun. We have people come into the office here in San Francisco, occasionally travel to other cities and uh, occasionally do some remote studies wherever appropriate. But what we do is we have, and especially for drivers, for DITO, what we'll do is we'll actually have drivers come and bring their car, park in our lot, and then we'll have them use a prototype of a new design or product that we are testing. And this allows us to capture everything that's going on while they drive. So it's one thing to be a passenger in your house, on the street, Looking at the app, you can stop, you can look at it for as long as you want in, in a maybe normal situation, let's say. But as a driver, you have so many other distractions and concerns. I mean, it's a very cognitively complex activity. You are doing so many different things at once, and now we've just added one more thing to pay attention to, which is the app. So it's a huge design challenge for our team and also... From a research perspective, it's really important for us to be able to get the data in that in the right environment, in the contextual way that they will be using it, because they're using the app at an arm's length. They can only look at it uh, upon glance. 
most of the time when they're driving for safety reasons. And we have to be really cautious about ensuring that it's not overly distracting. So one of the things that's been really great about this program is that times when we've tested like more low fidelity prototypes where we can't go in the car versus going in the car, we've learned quite a bit. There seems like there's an interesting, um, it was sort of a hybrid, uh, or like there's like a semi-contextual aspect here where, you know, they're not in a lab. It's, there's, there's, a, there's a high fidelity simulation of what the thing might be. You're dealing with their actual car. Um, you know, you have realistic use cases, but you're not also sending them off into the wild to live with this thing for a day. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a constrained experiment, but you're sort of creating, I guess, as much context within that experiment as you can. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's important for us to, it's a big part of how it's going to be used in the real world. So we need to capture that, how they do so in that environment. What about other, other examples of kinds of, you know, within what you can talk about, what are some other kinds of research that your team has done? We basically try to do as much mixed methodology as needed. Uh, we do surveys, as I mentioned, contextual inquiries. We're, we're basically employing everything that we need to design the right kinds of studies to answer the business questions. So, you know, we have some user interviews coming up. We have... We, what we also try to do is work very closely with our analytics team. Can you talk about anything that has... Um, that, that- people at UseLift have experienced uh, that's changed that, that as a result of some of the research you've done? Definitely. One of the most exciting things that I feel user research has impacted was our Lyft app redesign that launched at the very end of last year. So we did a lot of iterative user studies, user testing, especially around various versions of designs and the product moving forward. And most of the product and design decisions relied heavily on the research that we did. So by the time we launched the app, the new redesign, we felt and our team felt very confident that it would be successful once it launched. And it definitely was. We've seen really great results and have heard a lot of great positive reviews and comments about what we did. And I think a huge part of that, I I feel really proud to say, was due to the research that we did. So whenever you can affect the flagship app on such a big scale with this redesign, you can feel really good about it. Of course, we don't take all the credit. There's such incredibly talented people here that we were just lucky to be part of that process. I think even just the uh, this, this, this phrase about sort of, you know, being proud of what you accomplished it makes me think about, you know, how do you, how do you lead a research team? I mean, you know, giving out kudos, I think that's one part of it. I'm just projecting on you here a little bit, but um, what are other things? You know, talk to, talk to me about being a leader in research. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think until recently there weren't a lot of leaders in research. Primarily, I feel like research has had a lot of individual contributors, and that's how we've been seen in a lot of ways. People who are providing data, analysis, insights, and hey, Kate, great, thanks, you did your job. And now, with the growth of research, and especially user research, we're seeing more roles where there are leaders. And I think it's great for for all individual contributors because a lot of times, and this still happens today, the individual contributors um, who have worked as researchers in the past haven't always reported up through someone who understood what they were doing. 
And so it's great to see that that's changing to a degree now. And I think just in that sense of having the empathy, back to empathy, again, for understanding like what, what these researchers are trying to accomplish, what their personal goals are, I think a lot of what researchers in general, I'm just thinking back through my career as well, have felt is... Um, I mean, we really want to make a difference. We really want to have influence on the product or the design. We did this great research. We want to make sure that it gets in there. And this hasn't always been the case for me in, in past companies. Um, and one of the great things here at Lyft is that what we produce has been so highly utilized, probably more than any other company I've worked at. So coming back to your question in terms of leading, I think ensuring that the work that we do does get implemented or is seen as respectable, credible, and that people understand um, what we do and how we do it. And, and bringing them along for the ride, too, it brings us to a point where within the organization you're seen as, oh, wow, like they do really great work and they're going to affect really positive change for us. So sort of helping the team be known and understood as experts and ensuring that the work that they do has a positive effect on the company and for themselves. And you're right, that fell on the individual contributor to sort of, you had to do all that you had to do and you had to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about like what a good manager does. They sort of, they advocate for their team. They mm -hmm. protect them and, and champion them. Definitely. Are there, you talked early on about this really important mentorship relationship that you had in your career. Are there commonalities between what you experience kind of as the recipient of mentorship and what you try to provide as a leader now at this point? Definitely. I mean, John, who was my mentor back then, he, he gave me so much. And I feel like I'm at the point in my career where I definitely can do that for other folks as well. So right now, it's primarily here at Lyft, but I'd love to do that outside of Lyft as well. And what, how do we define mentorship? We talk about leadership, but what's the difference between mentorship and leadership? Yeah, I think mentorship is a little bit more focused on, well, in my mind, helping folks develop new skills as well. Um, leadership doesn't necessarily have to do that. I think leadership can do that. I mean, there is a Venn diagram of probably overlapping in the circles. <laughs> But um, I, I definitely believe that uh, a good mentor will help someone on a personal level develop um, into whatever career goals they have, helping them along that path to get to where they want to be. And for me, I learned a lot of methods from, from John. I think I'm trying to do that as well on a mentorship level, but also just be someone always who's there to talk through you know, career-related growth. You know, I think it, 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 in some ways it, we've talked a little about sort of the, the evolution of the field, and it makes sense that at that period of time, you know, developing methods, not that that was all you were learning, but that that was kind of a key. And I think about, you know, your three areas. I mean, the first one you listed, you kind of titled it as empathy, and then you listed like 18 other like really important sort of soft skills that, that, are, that, are, uh, that are crucial to being a researcher. So I just, you know, when you're, when you're there for people, as you say, I think that's starting to model, you know, yes, the methods, but also now these other pieces that are, that are so important to being a good researcher, mm -hmm. um, that are just very, to me, very human skills that mm -hmm. we all can, we all can do to work on. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Are there other things about you and your background or 
uh, that that we should understand to know what you know what kind of researcher you are or um, any 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 weird dots you want to connect for us? Yeah, actually, I think one of the things that's really unique to me is that I I previously had another life as a professional athlete. So I you know I was very active in team sports, um, and that's that's a big part of like my philosophy too. Very team oriented. I started playing soccer when I was six years old, and um, I got a scholarship for running when I was at Stanford. So that's been a really big part of my development and who I am. And the really cool thing about running at Stanford is that when I started there and started running on the cross-country team there, um, we weren't nationally ranked. And by the time I was a senior, my, my teammates elected me as the captain of the team, and we won the NCAA national title that year, which was less than four years later. And so it's it's been really interesting to draw a lot of comparisons and parallels to my athletics career and how I envision like sports and teamwork and accomplishments and my working career. And it's funny, I don't even realize I'm making these analogies. I started talking about it to a coworker the other day and I'm like, wow, I do this actually quite a lot. Um, but there are so many parallels to draw with Ricard to pushing yourself hard, getting to the next level, goal setting, you know, the competition and teams you know, relating to people, supporting one another. And one of the reasons why I think we won the national title back in 1996 was because we had such a tight, supportive team. And I really feel that we have that now at Lyft as well. User research is part of the product design team. And we are such a close team. Actually, we just came back from uh, a weekend retreat in Tahoe. So we're, we're kind of like a tight-knit family. Um, and I really feel that that support and that kind of environment fuels, helps fuel really great success. So some of these these parallels you're describing, they seem about, um, you know, what athletics teaches you about uh, working and collaborating. Are there any uh, any threads that you can pull from athletics that go into things that are specific to UX research? That's a really good question. I think I need a minute to think about it. Something I haven't thought about before. I'm sure there are. I, I, I think I need to noodle on this and then... <laughs> but I like the question a lot. I think because a lot of what the parallels have drawn have been more meta, like high level. Yeah, nothing springs to mind. But at some point, I'll get back to you and be like, Steve, guess what? I figured it out. And now my life's questions have been complete. Like, I know. I see the light. (laughs) Do you have questions for me? Yeah, actually, um, so I was curious because you're one of the few UX research veterans in the field, and I was curious what kind of trends you're currently observing in our little field that's growing. Yeah, I think I liked what you said about mixed methods. I think that seems to be, you know, where traditionally on paper there was a lot of us and them. I feel like I'm hearing more harmonious stories, and I, I think... It behooves us as a practice to tell harmonious stories, but because that speaks to a successful, integrated, mature, not a, you know, diva, you're wrong, this focus group suck, blah, 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 blah. Like that's sort of, that's what we've been saying. And I think uh, that's true or not, it's sort of disharmonious. And I feel like the the stories of how 
groups have come together. To me, that's like, oh, we're a little more mature as a world now because we can coexist well with everybody. And, uh, you know, the qual-quant things used to be, you know, cats and dogs. But as you said, you know, you guys integrate well. I've heard that from lots of groups that I've talked to and I've seen that. Um, you know, clients I work with start to say like, oh, yeah, we have this group, this group, this group, and we can kind of uh, pull lots of... So that's the mixed methods. That's also... I don't know, sort of mixed disciplines, I guess. So it seems like that to me. There's just a maturity level there with that. Yeah, that's one of my that's my big one. I'll I'll, I'll leave as the answer for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree, and I I really think that in order to have the most robust insights, we do need a good triangulation of different types of data to be able to tell that story. Right. Um, and I, I was also curious. Um, I mean, as we talked about. UX research has come a long way from, you know, the mid '90s and where where the the, the World Wide Web <laughs> was at that time. Um, I mean, just technology has come a long way, and UX research has alongside of that. So that said, where do you think UX research needs to develop most, given our current landscape? These are the questions I should be asking you, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> the tables have turned. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, what's the sort of opportunity? And this came up in a, in a as a topic in an earlier an earlier episode of this podcast series, where I don't know that we answered it, but we talked about this this idea of research sort of evolving to the point where it disappears. That research right now, there are leaders that are trying to you know develop it in a business, but and you've talked about the successful collaborations and so on. Is is this a thing? Is this an activity or is this a discipline? And and you know, I hear so much about teams trying to. I mean, one way to deal with the overwhelming demand of research is that research leaders are empowering teams to go do their own research, and so then they have to deal with this question of, well, what do we do as the researchers versus what do we kind of let everyone do? I mean, that's the consequence of the evolution of research. And we've been saying as part of that evolution, like everyone should be doing it. Everyone can do it, right? There's books that teach people how to do research. Like that's, that's a change. And so we, I think in the early days we struggled with, do we let go of this or do we hold on to it? And we chose to do a bit of both. So, you know, what's, how does that play out? I think is an interesting question. How should it play out? Um, and research doesn't exist in a vacuum. So how technology is developed, you know, we are in a lot of the way, in a lot of environments that research is being used, it's a, it's a close colleague of design, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you talked about being part of the product design organization, not some other, you know, part of the market research organization. You know? that's, the, that's who our sort of our, our teammates are. And design is changing. And you talked about this already too, right? That, that companies used to just do technology and sort of experience was secondary. So I think where research goes, we're sort of subject to these other larger changes in how in how experiences are created. So I, I don't I don't have an answer to that. And I'm not sure it's a it's a need. I don't just feel like, oh, we better get this sorted out or we're dead. I just feel like there's some interesting sort of existential questions to reflect on. And I mean over the course of our careers, you and I have seen what kinds of organizations and what kind of roles are, you know, are there for us has shifted a lot. And as you said, there weren't leaders like yourself a few years ago and not in the numbers that there are now. So, you know, even just for our own careers, like it's going to be different in a few years. And I don't know, I think it's a, it's tough to predict the future, but I think those are the, those are interesting if abstract areas for me to keep looking at. 
Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think it's, I agree with you. And I, I also think it's really great news that the discipline is growing because there is a lot of value that we can provide. And, you know, the Lyft research team is also growing. So I think it's, it's a really good sign of, you know, how much we're able to impact the organization in a positive way. And I, I love seeing now, after having come back from Berlin, previously it was like, oh, we can only work at big companies. And now I feel like every startup has a, a researcher, maybe not every startup, but it's becoming more and more um, common, which is amazing. You know, the uh, designers, founders sort of, sort of thing is like a... It's a, it's a thing that gets recognized and talked about, and I feel like maybe we identified one. I feel like I was on some Slack channel or some list, and people were saying, "Well, you know, when do we get our first researcher as founder?" Um, and I'm probably I'm probably misquoting someone that said that to me, and I apologize for that. And that company may exist, and and uh, but certainly that idea is is nascent, whereas designer as founder in the startup world, at least, is sort of well established. So maybe that's the that's the you know sort of next wave for us. Mm-hmm. Cool. I have one more question right. for you. So I'm really curious, uh, and I, I know you've had a lot of questions about this podcast, but I was curious what you've found to be the most striking similarities between all of whom you've talked to so far. Oh, don't you love when you go out in the field and the person at the end says like, hey, what else have you heard? Or like, am I normal? <laughs> they, want, they want you to kind of normalize them as part of it. No, that's not exactly your question here. But yeah, what do researchers have in common? I think the emphasis on product is really, is ex- I mean, it's a thing that we should be proud of as, as the field. Um, and it goes back again to your, your list of three things that you talked about as you, you kind of characterize researchers and needing to, you know, do good data collection. I'm paraphrasing you here. Make sense of it and then sort of help it live in the organization. I am definitely twisting what you said, but that's sort of a thrust I took away from it. And I don't know, I I carry some scars from my early days of coexisting with people that that where research was the their end they loved and and you know i guess scars but i'm also definitely guilty of this myself like research is fascinating if you do it well the experience is great and you learn things that have no relevance and i mean i'm a big fan of not knowing if it has relevance but you learn things that you don't know if it's what you're going to do with it but you also learn things that just are great and are not applicable um, but are part of what you have to do on that journey and and then you make sense of things and you find some really interesting takeaways uh, or things that are potential takeaways that aren't necessarily usable by the company mm-hmm. and then you you know of course then you find here's the things that we learned and here's what we need to do about it and here's all uh, but all the way along there's a lot of fascination right like mm-hmm. it, it's it's super engaging and just to me very creative and um I don't know. I can be seduced at many points along the way. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I'm good at making sure I get to that end point, but there's a lot of seduction along the way with just stuff that is super inspiring, super thought provoking that you kind of dig into and start synthesizing and organizing. And I, so that, so the scars are around, um, you know, maybe sort of early days in the field or my early days where that's where people kind of dwelled. And someone had to come along and kind of pull them and say, like, okay, you can't deliver that. You have to, you know, you have to show actionability. Like, the, uh, that, that sort of discussion was needed. 
And I mean, it, it makes sense that the people that I speak to who, you know, like you who are leaders, I mean, in order to be a leader, you have to be beyond that. There may still be practitioners and contributors who, who kind of need to learn more of that. But I feel like if I take the temperature of the practice in terms of how it's being led, it's about what we do with research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is just a massive change, again, over where when I started in my in my younger days. And so to see that in common, again, maybe you go like, well, of course, Steve, look who you're talking to and look what kind of jobs they have and look what kind of companies they work for. Um, you know, again, yeah, you might find people at that skill level, like yourself and experience level, if we were to like, you know, shift back 10 years, you would be maybe working in an R&D lab or like, a, you know, an an advanced products group or something and and not shipping stuff. So, yeah, the, I think one of the commonalities is, like, these are people making products uh, or, you know, helping companies make services, whatever the thing that their company does. They're doing that. And obviously that's, I think that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, one of the things that um, struck me about what you're saying is that fascination. And I think as researchers, a lot of what we love is having that curiosity and it's so fulfilling just to do the hands-on work my role is managerial but I'm always still you know I do some hands-on individual contributor work as well and I just love doing it right that's what makes us passionate about research we love doing it but I think in a business one of the dangers is getting too far into that fascination but then not taking that next step. And maybe that's where managerials uh, or managers can help with making sure that the the data and the analysis and then these insights and actionable recommendations happen and are affecting product. That we're not just doing the research and being fascinated it for our own curiosity and fulfillment of, right. of that, but that we're actually making sure it's being put to good use. Yes, that remind. I think that's really important, and it reminds me of just a, a period in my own career where where I was managing my own team in my in my consultancy, and um, I think like we had you know always had many different projects going on for different clients, and I want to say maybe for a period of eighteen months, which is a you know a long time in sort of consulting years, right? Uh, I didn't go in the field at all. I was doing what you're talking about, right? Sort of, you know, managing the problem, you know, helping with the synthesis, kind of trying to tie everything back, sort of a, a creative lead. And it was it was really cool to sort of, uh, you know, you remove one part of the puzzle and the other parts, the, I guess the other, the other things kind of rise in prominence. So it was really interesting for me to step out of certain tasks and step into other tasks in a larger way. And I actually remember the first time that I went, just worked out that like, oh yeah, I was going to go and do some of these interviews. And I almost had a panic attack. Like it had just been <laughs> so long. I was so, and I was not on my own. I just remember like kind of coming up to the door of somebody's house and just about, <laughs> just about freaking out. And you know, the way I work now, I'm sort of, I do more of everything, but having had that experience of um, sort of again playing just part of the part of the role was really really interesting. And mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm it's good to hear that you. It sounds like you're in the right spot. You still you still have your your hands in things, but you can uh, you know lead and kind of manage in that in that spot. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's maybe the, everything we have uh, have time for to talk about today. But uh, this is really interesting. I'm. Uh, it's one of these conversations where now I'm curious about a million other things. <laughs> you know, the, I'll have my imaginary next ninety minute conversation with you. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. You've yeah. really shared a lot today. Thank you, Steve. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. That's it for the second season of Dollars to Donuts. 
will be on hiatus, but hope to be back again soon. Thanks to our sponsors, Airbnb's Experience Research Team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. Balsamic, the maker of mock-ups, the rapid wireframing software that combines the simplicity of paper sketching with the power of a digital tool. And the Pinterest research team, who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. Our theme music was written and performed by Bruce Todd. You can find the links for this episode, read the transcript, check out all the other episodes, and subscribe at portugal.com slash podcast. And don't forget to buy interviewing users from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. And get in touch with me at portugal.com and let's start exploring how we can work together. Thank you.